We're coming up to uh, Incarnation Day, to Christmas. And uh, I was thinking, familiarity, there's a wise saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. But it doesn't only breed contempt. It also breeds a certain kind of carelessness, a certain kind of mindlessness. And I'd like to, uh, to elevate our awareness of what we're talking about when we come to this time of year and speak of the coming of Yeshua. I want us to get beyond, higher Yeshua. Uh, I want us to get beyond treating the King of Kings like he's our buddy. So it brings us to this, uh, this passage that was read. Uh, actually, this was not read, but this is a passage that I comes to mind. This is uh, very shortly after Yeshua was resurrected. It's about a week later. A week later is Tommy Diem, we're once more in the room. And this time, Toma, that is Thomas, was with them. He was not there when Yeshua first appeared to them. And he said, hey, I'm not going to believe this kind of stuff unless I put my hands on his side. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. Also, the, although the doors were locked, Yeshua came and stood among them and said, Shalom Aleichem. Then he said to Toma, put your finger here, look at my hands, take your hand and put it into my side. Don't be lacking in trust, but have trust. So how does Toma respond? He doesn't say, hi, Yeshua, nice to see you again. No, he realizes that it's not just that Jesus has come back from the dead. Lazarus also came back from the dead. It's that Yeshua is now transformed into the spiritual kind of embodiment that is characteristic of the age to come. I mean, the room was locked and Yeshua comes to be among them and yet he is physically there because you can put your finger in his hand, hand in his side and in, his, in the holes in his hands. So Yeshua is now a manifestation of a kind of reality that doesn't exist anywhere else on earth. So when Thomas hears this, he answered him, he said, my Lord and my God. And Yeshua said to him, have you trusted because you have seen me? How blessed are those who do not see, but trust anyway. So Thomas got the message that we need to get. He didn't treat Yeshua like his buddy. He didn't treat Yeshua like one of the guys. He realized he was dealing with the unique one. Our reading from the Brit Kaddashah today talks about the grandeur of who Yeshua was and who he is. It tells us he is the visible image of the invisible God. There's nothing more I can say. He is supreme over all creation. This fellow who appeared in that room, their friend, Yeshua, who they had come slowly to realize was the Messiah, was now the resurrected one, the firstborn of all those who were asleep 
the prototype of the age to come. And he's more than that. He is supreme over all creation. It says also in that reading, why is he supreme? Because in connection with him were created all things. This one, before he was Yeshua, when he was who we call the Logos, when he was the second person of the Holy Triunity, he, in connection with him, everything was created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or lordships, rulers or authorities, they have all been created through him and for him. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 7. He existed before all things. So do not simply think of Yeshua as the one who was born as a baby in Bethlehem. He had an existence, an eternal existence, before he became flesh and dwelt among us. Before he was Yeshua, he was the second person of the Holy Triunity. He was divine. And he existed before all things, and he holds everything together. In some way, Yeshua is the one who holds the whole universe together. That if God sought to just let it all go, everything would disappear immediately as though it had never been. So that's the grandeur of who he was and who he is. And if you think I can explain this to you clearly, no. But I don't feel bad because no one else can either. This is our stumbling around with words to try and describe the unique and in some ways indescribable. Let's look at the grandeur of who he is to and for us. Now we're looking more personally, not just at the grandeur of who he was and who he is, but who is he for us and to us? He's the head of the body, the Messianic community. Ultimately, Melissa Moskowitz and the board of Avatzion are not in charge of the congregation. Neither am I. Ultimately, Yeshua is the chairman of the board of the entire community of God's people throughout time and throughout space. He is the head of the body from whom everything else flows. He is the beginning, the beginning of what? He's the first one from the dead. He's the beginning here, we're talking about him as the beginning of the new creation. We talked before of him as the beginning of the old creation, but he's the beginning of the new creation, of the new heavens and the new earth. He's the beginning of that time when all of us will dwell in embodied immortality, when death itself will be extinct, when we will be worshiping God in community with others forever. He is the beginning of all of that. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he might hold first place in everything.
This is the one who came to us as a baby born in Bethlehem. But he's not higher Yeshua. For it pleased God to have his full being live in his son. Yeshua is the expression of the fullness of God. He's not simply a reflection. He's an expression of the fullness of who God is. And through his son, that is, when we talk about the sonship of Yeshua, we're talking about his pre-incarnate state. He, he was the son before creation. And God decided that through this one, who is called here his son, whom John refers to as the Logos, to reconcile to himself all things. That includes every one of you watching your screen. God decided that he would forgive you. And the vehicle of forgiveness is his eternal son, that God would reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace through him, through having his son uh, shed his blood by being executed on a stake. This is the one upon whom we are called to focus, especially at this time of year. So there's some mistakes we want to avoid. First of all, over-familiarity. Thinking of Yeshua as our kind of guy, the best of the breed. No, 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 no. Thinking of Yeshua as the hyper-rabbi or the head of our political party made in our image. We must not make Yeshua over into our image. He is not a Republican. He is not a Democrat. He is not an American. He is not wrapped in an American flag. He's not an Israeli either. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the eternal son who for our sake and our salvation took on human flesh and being bought, found in human form, he humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. So Yeshua is not just the hyper rabbi. He's not the head of our political party. He's not our kind of guy. We must never, ever remake him into our image. We should not have a Yeshua without a pre-time, pre-creation existence. Before he was Yeshua, he was the eternal son, the eternal logos, the eternal expression of the beingness of God. I live across the street from a house where, until he died about a year and a half ago, lived Colin Brown. Colin Brown taught theology at Fuller Seminary for 48 years. He was what's known as a polymath. A polymath is a person with world-class mastery of multiple di disciplines. He's a man who was asked by InterVarsity Press, I believe, to write a history of Western civilization. How many people do you know who have the breadth of knowledge to write a history of Western civilization? Colin Brown did. In talking about Yeshua, the Father, and the Spirit, 
Colin Brown felt that we tend, we have trouble expressing what that means. We tend to express the Father, Son, and Spirit as though it's a committee. He says, no, 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 that violates the unity of God. But neither is Yeshua the Father in human flesh. Yeshua is not the Father. He is the Logos, the expression of God's being, but he's not the Father. When he prays to the Father when he's on earth, he's not praying to himself. But how is this threeness and this oneness to be reconciled? Dr. Brown told me, I had a conversation with him, and he says that here's a better metaphor. God, the Father is God. The Spirit is the life of God. And the Son is the mind of God. Now that's a, just a metaphor. But just as, the, just as God cannot exist without, his, without mind and without spirit, so the Father does not exist apart from the Spirit and the Son. But we're talking about a distinction. Uh, intimate, intimate unity, but also some kind of distinction. Do I understand this? No. Did Colin Brown understand that he would be the first to have told you? No. But this clumsy metaphor is the best we can do of trying to express Yeshua's beingness, the Father's beingness, the Spirit's beingness, that pays honor to the deity, to the divinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but doesn't make this into a committee. We're not talking about a committee. So when we think about this one who became a baby in Bethlehem, remember that he had a pre-time, pre-creation existence. We must remember that Yeshua is not the Father. We don't want to have a non-Trinitarian Yeshua, the uh, apostolic Pentecostals, oneness Pentecostals, ignore this. They say that Yeshua is simply the Father taking on human flesh. No, not exactly. It's a mystery, but it's not ridiculous. It's just beyond our ability to grasp. We must also never have a Yeshua who was less than divine. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he's the greatest thing that God ever created. No. Yeshua existed before anything was created. So he's not less than divine. Yeshua, and we must also not go in the other direction. This is the greatest mystery of all. Yeshua is not entirely out of our reach. This one, this incomparable one, this one before whom angels fall down and cry holy, has made himself accessible to us. He is our intercessor. He is our compassionate high priest. He has made himself accessible to us. As a matter of fact, the Bible says we have boldness of access into the presence of God through our faith in him. Boldness. Now, that's only because in his compassion, in the Father's compassion, this way of access has been opened up to us. So we've got to balance all of these six things.
We want to avoid overfamiliarity, but on the other hand, and we want we we want to remember the grandeur of who Yeshua is, but we must not make him so grand that he's totally out of reach. He has chosen not to be unreachable. Yeshua told his disciples, I call you friends. Wow. Let's continue. This is Oscar Skarsana. Oscar Skarsana is a Norwegian Bible scholar. He's probably the world's greatest expert on um, the history of Jewish believers in Yeshua for the first six centuries, especially. He talks about this in a short monograph called Incarnation, Myth or Fact. Here's part of what he says. In the ancient world, the Christian dogma of incarnation was considered to be unique and especially offensive. You know, when I became a believer, my Aunt Dottie, may she rest in peace, she just talked about Yeshua's deity as an invention of the Apostle Paul that he invented about 200 years after Yeshua in order to merchandise Yeshua to the pagan world. She was wrong on every count. In the ancient world, the Christian dogma and the incarnation was considered to be unique and especially offensive. Insightful critics of Christianity clearly recognized that they were not dealing here with a common variant of a mythological theme. This was nothing like Greek myths of the gods becoming men, because the gods only came down disguised as human beings. They were an illusion, but the incarnation says that God, the word, became flesh, not assumed flesh, not put on a flesh suit. Here they were being confronted with something that collided head on with their concept of of divinity. We continue reading. Similarly, was it not virtually impossible for incarnational thought to exist in a Jewish milieu which differentiated so sharply between God and the world, the creator and the created? He's asking, how in the world did the idea of the incarnation take root? It was foolishness to the Greeks and it was blasphemy to the Jews. Can a Jewish environment in which the thought of incarnation is practically impossible at the same time Can this Jewish environment be the source for such a doctrine? He says, no, can't be that way. Where did it come from? And in one way or another, through being with Jesus, the conviction that Jesus burst all known categories of Judaism must have been impressed upon the disciples. In other words, by encountering the beingness of Yeshua, they drew conclusions that they were unprepared for. But they couldn't do otherwise. It is not possible to explain the doctrine of the incarnation by simply stating that such a belief was practically self-evident in either a Jewish or Greek environment. True, the Greeks were accustomed to myths about the gods who walked upon the face of the earth. But these were gods masquerading as men. Yet in spite of that, or perhaps because of it, 
The Greeks and the Romans reacted with strong and instinctive conviction when they encountered the proclamation, the word had become flesh. This is completely different from what is said in myths. This is unprecedented. So, when we deal with Yeshua, we are dealing with the one who bursts all other categories. So, we're going to sing a little bit. forth your son, born of woman, to redeem us. We pray that during this week, 
when the airwaves will be filled with Christmas stuff. That you would lift our hearts and our souls and our vision higher. May we not reduce the unique one before whom angels cry aloud. May we not reduce him to our buddy, to our chum, to our kind of guy. May we bow in body, soul, and spirit. And may we grow in the knowledge of you as we behold the glory of God in the face of Yeshua HaMashiach. We ask these things by his invitation in his name. Amen.